0: Thank you so much, Michelle, thank you for your uh, passion and really um, missionary efforts to engage with Folsom's Hope. It it probably bears mentioning, uh, as I'm becoming increasingly the old guy in the room, uh, I've been around a a little while around here. When we first got going as a church, uh, the second place we ever met after a living room was at Theodore Judah Elementary School. And so Folsom's Hope has a really kind of a, even a genetic coding sort of relationship with us as a church because we met there for uh, about a year and um, got to sew into some of those ministries before Folsom's Hope even really got started. And we, that's where we first met Sala and uh, had her out. So um, way to go. Thanks for continuing to carry that torch. Miss Michelle and uh, family for getting involved in that. Every single year when we put out those families, uh, they all get snatched up right away. And uh, it's always an encouragement to see our church family come around that really bless people. So uh, I don't say that as like one of those weird, you know, buy it now or that it's all going to be gone. But this is actually one of those times where it's actually true. If you want to support and adopt a family, even if you're not sure how you'll do it yet, I'd suggest you get signed up in the next week or so and, and grab those because they do they do go fast. Now What? It's a question that I suspect every single one of us has asked at some point in our life, probably many, many times in our life. Now what? Now what do I do? Oftentimes, it will come on the heels of something shocking or even tragic, a f- frightful diagnosis from the doctor or the loss of a job, or a demotion, or even the loss of a family member or relationship. Uh, But it's not limited to just tragedy and and difficulty. Sometimes the now what of life comes after we get the biggest promotion of our life, or the investments top out, and we go, oh my goodness, honey, we're rich. Um, That's not a conversation that will ever happen in my house, but for some of you, I just pray that for you and hope that's great, and Trust that you'll invite me over to dinner every once in a while if that's the case. Sometimes it comes, you know, moving into your dream house or bringing a child home from a hospital and you look around at family and friends and coworkers and you say, now what? In the last few weeks, in fact, I've had opportunity to be with a number of you one-on-one over a meal or a coffee or something stronger and have some conversation that revolved around your own individualized now what? Now what do I do with this baby? Now what do I do with an empty nest? Now what do I do with relationship changes? Really, the question that seems to be popping up over and over and over again in the life of our family around here is is not just the now what, but as we've become accustomed around here to pull the spiritual trap door from the first question and get at what's beneath it, what's deeper rooted in our own soul and formation. Really, the question behind the question of now what so often is, how do i flourish in life when i don't know what's next how do i flourish in life in these uncharted waters where i have no idea what to do that's what's been stirring in me lately and uh, i join in that with you turn with me to acts chapter 28 and if it's convenient for you i encourage you to snap a photo of that qr code behind me and it'll take you to our digital program and Uh, get you up to date, not just on the things Michelle shared, but on all the sermon notes for today and even some helpful kind of online links that I think will help you in your journey. Uh, And as you uh, get situated there, let's go first to Acts chapter 28, verse 16. When we arrived in Rome, Paul was permitted to have his own private lodging, though he was guarded by a soldier. Three days after Paul's arrival, he called together the local Jewish leaders and he said to them, Brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Roman government, even though I had done nothing against our people or our customs of our ancestors. The Romans tried me and wanted to release me, but they found no cause for the death sentence. But when the Jewish leaders protested the decision, I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar even though I had no desire to press charges against my own people. I asked you to come here today so we could get acquainted and so I could explain to you that I am bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. They replied, we we had no letters from Judea or reports against you from anyone who has come here, but we want to hear what you believe, for the only thing we know about this movement is that it is denounced everywhere. So a time was set and on that day a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and he testified about the kingdom of God. I pause long there so that can set in and if the Spirit is real and at work, and I am confident as ever that He is, those words ought to haunt us. He did not testify about who's going to hell and who's going to heaven. He did not testify about who's right, left or right. He did not testify about circumcision or non-circumcision. He did not testify about any number of things. He testified about the kingdom of God. And he tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. Using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. I promise not to do the same. (laughs) Verse 24. Some were persuaded by the things he said, but others still did not believe. They had argued back and forth among themselves They left with this final word from Paul. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet, go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened. And their ears can't hear and their... They've closed their eyes and they cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, would you find us to be a family of people today willing to be healed? We pray in Jesus' name. we pick up the story in what is acts 28 the last chapter in the book of acts and setting the context, for what we've just read, Paul has been on a very long journey. You probably picked up in the text that he had been arrested down in Jerusalem, and he's now arrived in Rome. And I'm not the best geographer, and I'm not the best historian, and some of you are really into the Roman Empire, so I'm going to do what I can to help set a context. Please don't send me an email and a TikTok, okay? Okay. But essentially, if you think about it this way, if you have kind of Jerusalem down here, and you've got the Mediterranean Sea all here, and then land up top, okay? If I had a map, that'd probably be helpful. Uh, But you've got Jerusalem here, and they sail all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, all the way up to Rome. A very long journey. And it has been a horrible journey. Even by ancient standards, it had been a horrible journey. And we, we see that play out in the earlier chapters of Acts. For the sake of time, I'll, I'll summarize uh, kind of three S's. Um, they've had just terrible storms. They've had shipwrecks, and they've even had snake bites. Um, so those are the three that come to my mind. There are other things that happened along the way. But it has been just an absolute nightmare. They had to switch boats at one point um, because they crashed one boat. It's been quite a journey. And the Caesar that Paul had appealed to when he was arrested down in Jerusalem was this guy named Nero. Now, some of you know lots and lots and lots about Nero. I don't know a ton. I'm going to give you just a thumbnail sketch about Nero. This is a bad dude, okay? And this is, this is a dude uh, that is about as greedy of uh, a ruler in the world as the world has ever seen. Uh, if there was ever any question about the scriptural precept that the love of money is the root of all evil, we see it played out in powerful and demonstrable ways in the life of Nero. Uh, Nero has been building these elegant palaces and beautiful things in Rome. No big deal. I've been there and saw some of it. Um, (laughs) Humble brag. Uh, He's been building all this stuff and, and making quite a name for himself. And as all this stuff is being built, not only does he have this insatiable love for money and this desire to um, have the most opulent palaces around. He also needs everybody in the world to love him and celebrate his every move. Know anybody like that? I do. They're exhausting, right? And he's traveling around all the countries while he's having all these palaces built, and he's robbing money from the rich and the poor alike. And ironically, they finally have it up to here with him when they start robbing the rich for money. It was fine when he's stealing money from the poor. It's when he started taking money from the rich that they really have had it and they um, they call him out. And he's traveling around the country um, singing and dancing and doing chariot races. Now that's real news friends. I know that may sound like um, wow, he was, he was the original triple threat. Um, <laughs> you see what I did there? Uh, and that's I mean this guy is just Just really, really full of himself. And we add to all of that 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 Paul also arrives to Rome in a season where Rome is not particularly welcome of Christians. And he's left Jerusalem where, to some extent, Paul has learned how to navigate this Israeli context a place where Judaism rules the day. And at that point in time, I'm oversimplifying some, but to set the context, at that point there's a there's a sense in Israel that it is Judaism against this new movement called Christianity, which wasn't even really called Christianity just yet, it's called the way. But he gets up to Rome and there is a myriad of things going on. Rome is a city completely run by pagan values and so paul arrives and he's just one of dozens of different cult leaders is how they viewed him they viewed him as a leader of a cult and he's just kind of lost in that melee and so he invites them out he's living in the shadow of nero that everybody hates and that is doing all kinds of bad stuff he's under lock and key having been arrested the first two times um And his Christian view is one that isn't really celebrated much at all. And and in all of that, there's additional trouble going on in Spain at the time and, of course, in the north of Israel, in Judah. And Paul is left in Rome for two years under arrest, awaiting a trial that never happened. (laughs) They, They literally have him on trial for his life, and two years passes, and Nero is so busy out singing and dancing and racing chariots And the Jews are so busy doing other stuff that they kind of forget about Paul. And after two years, finally, just go, I I guess we're done with you. You can go. Uh, And they release him until he's arrested again. um, The details of which I won't go into today. All of this serves as a simple, maybe not so simple, complicated reminder that in some of life's most difficult seasons, Sometimes, not always, but sometimes we just need to sit still for a while and let things play out. How many of you who have been around the block a few times can say, oh, yeah, boy, I, you know, we, we sometimes we get into these predicaments in life or in business or in relationship. And we go, I, I have to activate something. I'm a go-getter. I make things happen. I do things. And sometimes the best play is to just chill out and go, mm, if there is a God and if he's at work in the world, he's got this. Again, I say that if as a man who is greatly confident that there is a God and that he is at work in the world. Look back with me again at verses 23 through 25 as we've set a bit of a context for what Paul arrives to. He, he arrives not anonymously, but he arrives one more voice in a million voices in a world completely wrapped up in paganism. So a time was set and on that day, a large number of people come to Paul's lodging and he explained and he testified about the kingdom of God and he tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. Fast forward to verse 24. Some were persuaded by the things he said, but others still did not believe. And as we get into this text today and we begin to try and answer the question, now what, God? I want to remind us that in a lot of ways, this kind of crazy world that we live in and the crazy times in which we live are not so different from the crazy times in which Paul lived in Rome. The country in which we live is not so different than Rome in that day the things that matter around our world and certainly in the West are not so different from the things that mattered to Rome in that day. Am I bugging you? I don't mean to bug you. And so we we enter the story and we do our very level best to put on first century thinking as we look at the text to say, God, what would this have for us as we live out the way of Christ in the world in which we live. You see, we live in a time where being persuaded or a persuasive argument even is considered a very suspicious and negative thing. Most of us are pretty anchored in the things we think, and the things we believe. And there's almost a sense in our culture now and, dare I say, in our church that moving a view whatever it might be, is somehow a show of weakness. And I would suggest to you, friends, that the way of Christ is a wildly persuasive way to live. The way of Christ will will require you be persuaded to new thinking all the time. Because as we uncover more in the scriptures about what made Jesus tick and why he called his disciples to this and that, we will have to be transformed. We sing these words, God of revival, come awaken our city. And I know that many of us mean those words. We go, yes, God, revive our city, change everything. And I'm telling you, as I read it in scripture, there are three ways that mass revival happens throughout the course of human history. Mass revival happens, one, by a season of unexplicable healing. We see it over and over and over again. That God just begins to heal people in a number of different ways, and revival breaks out through healing. No, Can't control that. Can't force it. Don't care how many Bethel songs we sing. We just can't make it happen. (laughs) And that's not a swipe on that. It's just the reality that God's in control of healing. You know, we have a part to play and all that. This is not a sermon on healing, but uh, give me a big umbrella of grace there. You know, I love you and I believe in this stuff and I've seen my own kids get healed, but we can't have a whole heck of a lot of impact on when God decides to do mass healing. That's one. Two, mass persecution. We see the Christian movement grow and spread and revival break out. And it does even today in places where there's mass persecution against their faith. And let me just say, if I haven't already bugged you, let me bug you with this. You dearest Americans are not being persecuted. Your politics aren't being persecuted. Your property tax is not persecution. Y'all need to get on an airplane and travel a little bit if you think you're living persecution. I don't mean to be snarky there, but I mean, come on. Some of you all have left communist countries in trunks of cars, okay? This, you know. Not getting what I want in the voting poll is not persecution. That's just being disagreed with. Um, Which gets back to the issue of persuasion. The third, the third way mass transformation happens, the third way mass revival happens is by followers of the Christian way committing to transformation. Like this this is the vast majority of all of Paul's writing is being written to churches and to church leaders, saying, enter into your transformation. Cooperate with the work of the Spirit to become different. Well, the beauty of that is, we're in the driver's seat of that. We can commit to cooperate with the work of the Spirit to be transformed. So we think about persuasion sometimes as a negative thing, and I think it's important that We pull from the text here that the two different times persuasion is used by Paul. And and let me go so far as to say this, that in your next now what of life, be persuaded from the scriptures. Be persuaded from the scriptures. I got out of the shower this morning and I was getting ready and I don't often do it, but for whatever reason, I took off my wedding ring and set it on the counter and was doing my thing and forgot to put it back on and i have found myself all morning long playing nervously with my finger cuz my wedding ring's not there. You ever do that with whatever, you know, you maybe you're a watch wearer or maybe you wear earrings and you just when you don't have them you find yourself fidgeting with it constantly? I, I think that's what the spirit would have us to feel when we're not in scripture. Like a fidgetness about oh, I haven't been in the word today. I I need God's word in me. I need to get in scripture. I can't speak for you, but I find in this day and age, the idea of being persuaded is often viewed as such a negative thing. And maybe it's because of its very close cousin manipulation, Uh, right? They're like closely related and eat off the same plate so often which is why we can give ourselves to the curiosity of being persuaded if we're only ever persuaded from the scriptures. If we we meet with a friend and we talk to them about a view or an idea or a thought or a call or a vision, and we go, let's get to the scriptures and let's see what God's word has to say about that. We're going to go into the voting booths for a pretty big election in the next year. And friends, we didn't behave so well on the last round. I think we learned some stuff. But may we take our scriptures into even the voting booth. May we take our scriptures to our budget. May we take our scriptures to where we give our time. And may we just recognize that we're being persuaded all the time. It's We're being persuaded by advertisers, by, by trusted friends, even by waiters. Never order the fish special at brunch, friends. I don't care how well the waiter sells you on the fish special at lunch. Have we learned nothing from the great Anthony Bourdain? Don't order the fish on Sunday morning. It's old and gross, right? We're always being persuaded. And it's important that we remember that the way of Jesus is a persuasive way. And it's one to be entered into. And if we become The kind of people who can be persuaded of nothing, who can never have our minds changed, we're pretty closed off to the work of the Spirit and to the way of Christ because he will constantly be persuading us to open up new aspects of our soul. Think about when Jesus was asked by one of his young disciples in the early days, hey, I want to come follow you, Jesus. I've just got to go. Um, go to a funeral first. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Come follow me now. Seems kind of insensitive. (laughs) Remember on the other occasion when he says to his disciples, pick up your cross and follow me? They they didn't have a full context for what he meant by that. But we do. (laughs) That's pretty persuasive language. Enough said on that. Go to uh, verse 25. Uh, Let's pick up there. got a few minutes remaining, and I want to get you here to verse uh, 25 to 27. And after they had argued back and forth among themselves, uh, man, highlight this, underline this. um, Let's get back to a world um, where we learn how to argue together in great love and, and cherish one another's ideas, even when we disagree. Like, let's lead the way, church, Let's not be a world where if you don't agree with me, I just don't ever talk to you about that thing. No, let's sit down and be like, hey, um, can we talk about, a couple things went through my mind. I said, I don't even want to say the word in here. I'll get murdered in the chat later. Like they argue back and forth and some were persuaded and some were, these things matter. The way of Christ matters in our midst. Let us never have a faith. Well, I just have my own personal faith with Jesus and that's my thing and I don't discuss it. That's not even Christianity, guys. This individualized life with God, it's Buddhism with Jesus as your mascot. Christianity is a communal and submissive and non-coercive way. There's no other way we can live out Christianity but together. Well, my together is the, whatever. I Make your together whatever you want to make it, I guess. It's a communal way. They argued back and forth among themselves and they, and they left with this final word from Paul. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to the ancestors through Isaiah the prophet. And, and then he quotes this famous text from Isaiah 6. Maybe you've already looked it up, but the, the text comes right on the heels of Isaiah being touched on the lips and being called by God. And, and maybe you're familiar with the interaction and God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me Lord. And then these are the next words that God says to him. This is like the invitation to say your yes before you know what God's asking you to say yes to. Because would anybody say yes to this? I mean, maybe Isaiah would, but he, uh, you know. Go and say to the people, when you hear what I say, you won't understand. And when you, you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear. And they've closed their eyes so their eyes can't see. And their ears can't hear. and Their, their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. They cannot turn to me and let me heal them. To drive home this point, Paul takes them back to the prophet Isaiah. He's already been arguing for many hours, right? From from morning until night, I think was the, what the text said, right? All day long he's been arguing. And he's been using the prophet's. To argue that case in Moses. And so now he takes them back in closing back to Isaiah chapter 6 and he, he reminds them of what God said to Isaiah about what the people would do. And, and just as a reminder, the people whose ears are closed and eyes are closed and cannot hear the voice of God and cannot usually <laughs> they're the religious types. I mean, remember the ministry of Christ? Jesus has all his trouble with the religious leaders who had it all figured out already. He already knew everything. And what he does here, what Paul's doing here is brilliant. And uh, if we had an hour, it would be so fun to explore it in greater depth. But I, I want to tease out a few things that may help you in your personal study or just as you... As you ponder, because he's teasing out something here really brilliant for a whole host of reasons. He could have gone anywhere, to any prophet, to to any of the statements of the prophets where God is giving a call to come back to him. That's the story of all the prophets. Come back to the way of God. It's the most beautiful and wonderful way to live. But he comes to Isaiah 6. And he shares the first part of God's instructions to Isaiah and what Isaiah is to say to God's people, Israel, as the prophet, right? It's the whole listen carefully, but don't understand, hardened hearts, people plugging their ears, all that. But what he stops short of is the next stanzas from Isaiah 6 that come right after that. So Isaiah and God are going back and forth in Isaiah, and Isaiah says, I'll go, send me. And God says, okay, here's what to say. And then Isaiah responds to the here's what to say by asking God this very simple question. How long will it go on, God? How long will their hearts be hard? How long will their eyes not be able to see? And God says this in Isaiah 6, until their towns are empty and their houses are deserted and the whole country is a wasteland, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel is deserted. If even a tenth of remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. And wouldn't you know it, three years later, Rome burns to the ground under Nero's leadership. And I got to believe, friends, that at least part of what's rattling around in the back of Nero's head when his city burns to the ground and all his greed and all his lush possessions is I remember that time when Paul first came here and he referenced Isaiah 6. And, and this is always a tease for the Jews. Remember how a Talmud dean would learn the scriptures. They didn't have them written down. So bear in mind, we've talked about this numbers of times over the years, but the way a young Jew would learn the scriptures, especially the Psalms, but all of the first five books of the Torah, is their, uh, their teacher, their rabbi, would tell them the verse before, and the stanza after, they didn't have verses yet, but the stanza before and the stanza after, and their job as a Talmudin, as a young learner, was to insert that which was in the middle. So if it's Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I want, he leads me beside still waters. Thank you, I lost it for a moment. Calvin for the win again. The the job of the Talmudin was to fill in the middle part. And in such a way, Paul is leaving out the middle part and saying, y'all fill it in yourselves. Here's what will happen if your hearts remain hard. You're going to lose the thing you love the most, your city. You're going to be deserted. It's going to burn. You see, in, in your next now what of life, I think it's increasingly important for us as a people, for you as an individual, to guard yourself against a hardened heart. And the tricky thing about guarding oneself against a hardened heart is I have yet in my own life to recognize my heart is growing hard until it's already hard. You ever caught that? You ever recognize that in your own life or six months passes and, and something has happened in a relationship or at work or whatever, and you go, oh my goodness, boy, I've really come a long way. And I don't know exactly when it happened or when it started or or all the things, but boy, I'm really hardened to that person, to that way of life, to that sacrifice, to that love of obeying the way of Christ. And in some ways it comes as we fall in love with material possession, as we increasingly fall in love with our individual autonomy, so we fall in love with power and prestige, all things that stand in clear opposition to the way of Christ, and our hearts slowly grow hardened to the tender and peaceful and gentle and loving way of Jesus. Now, make no mistake, Jesus isn't some softy. He's like victorious, like he wins. He has won. But he doesn't do it in the way of this world. And so let me wrap up my closing moments here by giving you maybe just some simple, uh, non comprehensive ways to guard against your own heart's hardening. Uh, one, stay curious about people and their perspectives. Just stay curious, my friends. The Dosakis guy had it right. Um, he, he didn't intend to, but he had it right. Stay curious about people, about their story. Even when you disagree with them, at, at like the root, be like, man, i got to find out more. Why, what makes you tick? Help me understand that. Help me know you better. And, and curiosity towards another human being who's made in the image of God, like let us remember we're not the only ones who were made in God's image, right? The one across the table or across the aisle was also made in God's image. That if we have already committed ourselves, that I will only ever be persuaded out of Scripture. I will only ever be persuaded because of what is in Scripture. Then I can remain increasingly curious about another and their perspectives. I said, oh, that's really fascinating. And then we can either with them or alone or with others come back to Scripture and go, how do I line that up with the teachings of Scripture? This is the anchor piece to all of this. So stay curious about people too. Remain dependent on Jesus and his way. Remain dependent on Jesus and his way. Maybe a, a, a little Ignatius examine for you might be, when was the last time I read a gospel in the Bible? Whether in one sitting or over the course of Weeks or months or days. When's the last time I just sat down? Not for Bible study, not for a teaching thing I'm doing, not to check a box, but just sat down and just read it. Like the beautiful story that it is. Grab a different translation or a, a bad translation. Who cares? Just read the stories of Jesus from Scripture. And three, be really suspicious. Like real, I should have really said really, suspicious of your own wisdom and your own intellect. We are wildly puffed up in the West. Uh, we, we go all over the world as Westerners and teach people all around the world how to do things in their country uh, that they like know perfectly well how to do because we just assume, well, I'm from America. Of course, you would want to know what I have to think. And then we arrive and they go, hmm. I've told the story a thousand times here when Somebody said to Tita on one of our first trips down to Guatemala, some, something along the lines of, man, I just feel so bad for the poverty you guys live in. And He said, oh, oh, brother. It was a guy who said, it. brother, don't feel bad for us. We feel bad for you and all your wealth because you don't even have to hear Jesus speak. We can't go an hour without hearing Jesus speak here. <laughs> it's like we go around, oh, I'm so sad that you're so poor. And they're like, oh, don't be sad for my poverty. Don't be sad. Be suspicious of your own wisdom. intellect. Uh, It generally, um, in and of itself, will not lead you to the way of Christ. And there, for the next two years, Paul found himself right there in Rome, holding court, I imagine, writing a bunch of books. He wrote, uh, I won't be comprehensive here, uh, but he wrote Colossians while in Rome during those two years. He wrote Ephesians. He wrote Philemon. He wrote both letters to Timothy. There's probably some others. Um, I think those are it. But all that to illustrate, Paul's a busy boy while he was um, under house arrest in Rome. And God was using him in amazing ways. So now what? What's your now what? What do you do with your life from here? What do you do do if you're like Jen and I and you're beginning to navigate empty nests and figure out what that's going to look like? We've got one left at home and the house is real quiet. Now what? For those of you who have little ones in the house and they're running around, what, 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 do, we, what do we do now with a tiny one and life looks different? Now what? Now what? Our, our kids are in elementary school and they're starting to run a million different directions and they're in school activities and there's stuff every night. How, how do I even guard and protect and flourish in my faith without just saying, well, I'll check back in to Jesus when my kids get older. Now what? Now what? For those of you who are in the twilight years of your life, do you just coast off into retirement and enjoy the fruits of your labor? Well, I hope so, but is that it? I hope not. Now what? May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may his face shine upon you. Pray with me. God in heaven, you have made us, and when you were done, uh, it gave you great pleasure, and you said... In that great pleasure, that we were excellent in every way. Over the course of human history, our selfishness and our pride and the mark of sin that we all carry have moved us away from excellent in every way. But we rejoice that the goal here is not to get from Genesis 4 when it all unraveled back to Genesis 1 where communion was sweet. No, the the goal is something even more beautiful and perfect than Eden. It's communion with Jesus. And in the new creation, there's still two trees, but there's no tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's only the tree of goodness, the tree of life. So may we perch ourselves gently under the tree of life and find your presence and your way to be the most beautiful and the most joy-filled, and the most excellent way we could ever live. Hear the praises of your people and find delight in them, we pray.